Welcome to the Pastor's Roundtable Podcast, a podcast where we pull apart and deconstruct the habits, routines, and tactics of the great men and women of faith. Drastically changed my life. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Here is your host, Ryan Latham. Well, hey, John, thanks for joining today. It's really special to have you on because uh, uh, you're my pastor, and so super excited to have you join us today. Yeah, well, how cool to be on, man. We're, we're friends. We've worked together. Um, so we, we, we've known each other for a lot of years. We've probably cried together and laughed together. And uh, so, no, it's awesome to be on the show, man. Yeah, so, John, you're a uh, pastor of a pretty good-sized church. Uh, you're also the president of king's college or king's university there so that wasn't always what you were doing that wasn't always your path in life so i'd love for you to just kind of let's just jump back and like you said we worked together uh even before we were on staff together we worked together in kind of a unique partnership before that and so let's just kind of jump back uh you know 10 years ago 15 years ago talk about that journey that led you up to this moment where you're at right now yeah, I, I may be different than a lot of pastors. You know, there may be a lot of pastors out there who went to seminary and then, or maybe they didn't go to seminary, but they had a vision of becoming a pastor, started as a youth pastor and worked their way up the ladder, so to speak. But I, I didn't want to be a pastor. I was, I grew up a preacher's kid and I didn't, that was the last thing in the world I wanted to be. And uh, I was in higher education and that's kind of where you and I met, uh, oddly enough, as I was the VP of advancement at a university. And, and I thought that was my, my that was my dream I wanted to be a university president that was my goal I uh, got a master's degree in education I went on to get a doctorate degree in education and university administration because that was that was John's plan and uh shortly after you and I met you were you were launching the the intern program there at Victory Church and and I was attending Victory Church I just I was a greeter <laughs> and uh I very long story short but I became a campus pastor uh, there at that church. And, uh, that was a huge, um, shift for me, uh, very, you know, distinct, distinctly knew the Lord was calling me to do that and just completely pivot and do a 180. So I did. And for about three years from 2011 to 2014, I was the campus pastor there launching a new campus. And, um, and then in 2014, uh, just a devastating thing happened in the church and a founding pastor, uh, 20 year founding pastor had a moral failure is a great man of God and still is a great man of God, but just made a horrible mistake. And um, so another very long story short, I became a senior pastor after just three years of being a campus pastor. So it was always a trial by fire. God always just kind of threw me in the deep end and said, sink or swim. But uh, um, so, yeah, that, that was my life from 2014 till 2018. And then in 2018, uh, God, you know, doesn't waste a thing, right? He, I had all these degrees in higher ed and a, a longstanding history of um, administration at a university as a VP. And so then, you know, Gateway Church down in Dallas called me and said, hey, we want you to come and be the president of our university. And so now I am, like you said, I'm the president of the King's University and uh, pastor a church in, in, a, in a different state. So it's an adventure. It's crazy. Uh, only God could do this, and only by the grace of God is it possible, and with really good teams and with really good leadership around me. So God's hand is on it. God's grace is on it, and I hope he lets me do it forever, but I don't know I don't know what's in store, but uh, yeah, we're having a blast, man. Just I love the local church, 
and I love higher education. And for some reason, God's letting me um, have a foot in each and I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah. So I love the story that you tell uh, the, the paper truck story, uh, yeah. the Dunner Mifflin story. So just real quick, <laughs> I, I love when you tell the story, just tell, tell yeah. me that story again. Yeah. Before I went into higher education, I was really confused with my life and uh, I went, I played college basketball. Basketball was life to me, which was really silly, but God used that to get me where he wanted me to be. And um, so out of college, after, after my bachelor's degree, I wanted to be a college basketball coach. And um, so I went and got a master's degree. But in the meantime, I was a kid around and tell people that I was working for Dunder Mifflin. I was basically delivering copy paper and uh, had a territory in the state and worked with banks and sold all kinds of print materials. And so I, I drove this big white van, you know, the ones with no windows that you don't, you know, you tell your kids not to approach and ask for candy. So it was just a weird deal. And I, you know, I was, I remember driving home one day and just crying out to the Lord, like, Lord, I don't want to be a paper delivery boy the rest of my life. Like, what are you doing? And the phone rang and, and it was a phone call that led me into higher education and kind of launched my life uh, forward. That was around, that was around 2004. So. So John, one of the things that I continually hear about your story, knowing, knowing you for a long time is just simply saying yes to that yeah. next step and right. that you haven't necessarily had this master plan of like, man, in 15 years, if I deliver paper and I yeah. say yes to this phone call, and then I'm going to meet this person by greeting the front door. And then they're going to invite me to preach and they're going to hear me. And then I'm going to become yeah. a, and, and you've just said yes. And been obedient. I mean, even the story of how you became um, or was available to become the, the, the uh, president right? Yeah. Like you just said yes to getting your doctoral degree. And you even at one point said, man, I'm a, I'm a pastor now. I don't need this. I don't, I don't need this anymore, but you were faithful to finish that. And it was yeah. almost, what, like, almost like a week later that they called you and said, Hey, we need a pastor who has yeah. fundraising experience that has a doctorate. And you were like, it just all yeah. together perfectly. Right. It's just weird. Um, you know, really it's, it's, I've just tried to really trust in the sovereignty of God and I, and that's much easier said than done. And I'm, I'm not the best at it always, but I've always just kind of lived my life on waiting for God to open the next door um, and not kicking down doors. And yeah, I, I start, when I started pastoring, I, I was ABD, which means all but dissertation on my doctorate degree. And I fell in love with pastoring and, um, and so I was like, well, I don't need this doctorate degree. I guess I missed it. But I distinctly, distinctively remember the Lord telling me to get my doctorate degree. So it was really confusing. But I was like, but I don't need that. I'm a pastor. Why would I need a doctorate degree in education? So and I, you know, took over the church, senior pastor, did it for a couple of years. And then around 20, uh, it was probably around 2016, uh, my wife started saying, you need to finish your degree. And I said, what for? I, I don't need it. I'm never going to use it. And, you know, our wives can sound a lot, a lot like the Holy Spirit. And she said, because you're not a quitter. And someday you're going to, you know, walk across that stage and put on that silly doctoral hat. And someday at your funeral, your kids are going to be watching the slideshow of your life and they need to see that you finished. Mm. And I was like, holy cow. So I did it just for that reason. I'm like, okay, well, I'm never going to use this degree, but I'm not, I'm not a quitter. I'll just do it. So I quietly did it. I started getting up at 3.30 in the morning because I had no other time. I get about 3.30, I'd write my dissertation. I did that for a couple of years and then uh, about a year and a half. And then, so I, I finished it. And in August of 
August of 2017, I defended my dissertation and became, got my doctorate. And then they didn't, they mailed me my diploma. Um, and I got it like in March, it was from ORU and EDD. I got it in March. And it was about three weeks later that TKU called and said, hey, we're looking for somebody who has pastored a megachurch, somebody who has fundraising experience because that's what presidents do at universities, which is what I did in higher ed. Somebody who is under 40 years old and somebody who has a doctorate degree. And I just happened to fit all four of those molds. And so, um, yeah, it's it's like, um, it's, the, it's the kind of things, I think our life really only makes sense in reverse, right? Like if we try to forecast our life, it doesn't make sense, but it didn't make sense that I was getting a doctorate degree, but now it does. And so I think it's just, you know, I've, I've never, I'm not saying anybody should not do this, especially in the line of work you're in. I've never filled out a resume. Like I've never applied for a job in my life, not one time. And I'm not saying that's the way to go. And John says, don't apply for a job. I'm not saying that. God just has just brought things to me. And I, I you know, you say that idea of saying, yes, the, the founder of the King's University is Jack Hayford. And we were talking to Jack Hayford's sister uh, several months ago. And we asked Jack, Jack Hayford's sister, Rebecca, uh, this question. We said, well, what would the world look like if Jack Hayford would have never existed? That'd be like saying, what if Billy Graham didn't exist? You know, and she says, the world wouldn't look any different. And we were like, what? What are you talking? How is that possible? I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have been impacted by, by the ministries of Jack Hayford. And she said, um, if Jack wouldn't have said yes, somebody else would have, mm. because God's plan doesn't change. Only the people he uses changes. And so she was just trying to say, look, Jack just said yes. Jack was just willing to say, Lord, I don't have any preconceived ideas. Like my life, I'm just laying it on the altar. And I, I really think that's all God asks of any of us is just to just be available and stop trying to figure out what your life looks like and m manipulate and control your life and just say, God, this is all I got. And you get all of it. Um, so, yeah, that, I think if we all, like I said, I don't always get that right, but it's definitely something that I've seen God do in my life time and time again. So, John, I want to read some quotes that uh, stick out to me um, when you first took over uh, the church. And yeah. the church was, you know, let's be honest, it was, it was, it was a season of hurting um, yeah. and where trust had been lost. Um, yeah. And I think there's so many leaders that step into situations like that um, yeah. as kids, pastors, youth pastors, lead pastors, whatever role it might be. Um, we're walking in as the new guy. Um, yeah. And often, unfortunately, trust has been broken. So I want to read you a couple quotes. I'd love for you just to kind of give us a little bit more to what was behind that. So yeah. the first one here is credit me some trust. Yeah, that, that was the first thing I told the congregation when I took the stage um, on November the 1st, 2014. I, first off, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I had been a campus pastor for three years. Uh, I had never been a senior pastor. I think before I became a senior pastor, I had preached like a total of maybe 10 times, like ever. So I had no idea, <laughs> you talk about a God thing. I had no idea, like I would have never made a search. Like if you were, you know, if they hired Ryan Latham to do a search for this, I wouldn't have even been on the chopping, I wouldn't even been on the list. So I knew walking up there that um, not only had they, all the trust been lost, but how do we trust this guy? You know, this guy doesn't have the experience. And so I, I, I talked about how, you know, Abraham believed and um, 
the Bible says that Abraham, that God credited righteousness. What that told me is that he didn't earn it. God gave it to him as a credit. And so uh, it was probably the most, it's probably the most important thing I've ever said. Um, maybe not on a platform, but it's the most important thing I could have possibly said that day. And people still remember that phrase. And I basically just got up there and I said, guys, look, I know you don't know. You, some, many of you don't know who I am. Um, I haven't earned anything. I haven't shown you that I have a, I have a past of being able to do this. I, haven't, I don't have a track record to prove to you. I don't have a list of sermons for you to listen to and say, yeah, this guy's pretty good. I just need you to credit me trust. And then let me try to pay it back over the next couple of years. So yeah, that was just something that kind of came came off in the moment, and um, and it stuck. But I think it was probably the the best thing I could have said. I I didn't have to, I didn't get up there and try to say this is why you should trust me, and this is why you know this is why I'm qualified. I just said, guys, look, I know I'm not qualified. Just credit me some trust. All right, the next one um, along the same line. I don't remember if you said this from the stage or just with our or with our staff, but I remember you telling us this often: is that trust is earned by the spoonful and lost by the bucketful. Yeah, the first I'm, I'm not the originator of that quote. The first time I heard it, I don't know where the originator is, but the first time I heard it, I heard Mart Green say those words. I think it was at a commencement ceremony or something that he was speaking, and it got into my soul. You know, and I think um, it's such an important, everybody knows this, you know, you can, you can earn the trust of your spouse for 30 years and then cheat on them. And every drop of trust is lost immediately. And so that's, I was coming in on the heels of a moral failure. And when a pastor has a moral failure, it's a bucket. I mean, but it is a bucket that's just tipped over and nobody trusts anything. And so it was another thing that I would say, guys, you know, I know you don't trust me, but just give me one spoonful every day um, and I'm going to try to earn this trust. All right. Last one. I remember uh, you were you were encouraged by uh, one of your pastors. He said, plant seeds and and the harvest will come. Yeah. So that was that was Jimmy Evans. I, I was having a hard, really hard time. If there's pastors out there who are just in a really hard season, um, you know, a year. 12 to 18 months following this, this deal was just hell. I mean, it was just, it was horrible. Um, just going through all, all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of challenges of following the heels of more failure. your church, church attendance, church giving systems, structure. I mean, you name it. Um, and I remember I, Jimmy Evans would always call me like, it's like he had a, he had my phones tapped or something. Like he would call me, the craziest of times when I was just like in a fetal position. And I remember this time he called me and I was like, Jimmy, I just don't, I'm not seeing any fruit. And that's what he told me. He said, John, you're, you're standing in the, in someone else's harvest. And there's probably a pastor who needs to hear that. Like, you just feel like you're not seeing any fruit. And what he, what he encouraged me with is you're standing in the, in the fruit of somebody else's seed. Like I just walked into this field. I didn't sow any of these seeds. I didn't build this building. I didn't build these systems. I didn't build this team. I didn't build this staff. I didn't build this culture. I didn't build this vision. I didn't build any of this. I'm just standing in it. And, you know, I, I want to write a book someday about builders versus rebuilders, you know, because there's lots of books on how to build a church and how to, how to start a church and a lot of help out there on how to start churches. But for some reason, God has called me to rebuild stuff. And it's, it's Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. And anytime you're rebuilding something, there's going to be a season where there's just rubble, 
you know, you got to mix the concrete and start putting rocks back on the wall. It's just, it's demolished. And so Jimmy just said, look, you can't worry about the fruit. Like, stop worrying about the fruit. You didn't plant it. Stop, so stop staring at the fruit. Just sow seed. Wake up every day and sow a seed. And he said, years from now, you'll wake up one morning and you'll be standing in a field of your fruit. And I feel like we're at, I feel like we're there now. And I feel like I'm seeing the fruit of seeds that we've sown for many, many years. Um, so to the pastor out there who's discouraged right now, um, just throw seed down. Stop staring at the fruit. Even if it's a fruit that you produced through a mistake, um, it doesn't do any good to to harp on it, to, to set your mind on that. So yeah, that, that was that quote and the story behind it. <laughs> Let's jump into the book. You wrote a book, Half the Battle, Healing yeah. the Hidden Hurts. Such a good book. Um, uh, I've listened to so many of your, your messages about it. Um, would love for you to just kind of share a little bit about what is that battle? Why half the battle? Um, unpack that for us. Yeah. Uh, so, so really the thought of that is it's a, it's a mirror of our life and it kind of, it kind of parallels with the Israelites and their journey into the, into the promised land. And, you know, everybody thinks the promised land, we're all waiting for our quote unquote promised land. Right. And the land flowing with milk and honey. But if you read that Bible pretty closely, you'll find that the promised land was full of battles. So that's all they did was fight. They did Jericho and AI and the Northern kingdoms and the Southern kingdoms. It was a fight. And, but what I found is that I came across this passage in Joshua chapter five, verse nine. And it was like, God was saying, yeah, we're going to go fight battles. We're going to fight for our families. We're going to fight for our marriages. We're going to fight for our, our, our callings. We're going to fight in the natural, but that's only half the battle. But there's a greater battle that I've learned in my life before I ever face a battle on the outside. God challenges me to face a battle on the inside first. And I discovered it in this, in this story of the Israelites. Um, so they're at the Jordan River. They're about to cross. They've just crossed over. And something really, really bizarre happens, right? In chapter four, God, in chapter three, God tells them to circumcise themselves. And you're like, what? Really? We're about to go fight a battle. Wouldn't you tell us to sharpen our swords? Not, you know, the awkwardness of circumcision. Good Lord. What are we talking about here? So then in, in Joshua chapter five, verse nine, right after the circumcision, this is a crazy verse. The Lord told them, today, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And I've read through the Bible many times, but for some reason I read it and I was like, what are you talking about today? Like, 40 years later, they haven't, it's 40 years since Egypt, since Egypt was, a, was an issue. But he says, today I've removed the reproach of Egypt from you. And reproach in the Hebrew means shame. And so, um, and you got to think too, these people that were getting circumcised, they've never even been to Egypt. That was their parents. Like it was a generational shame. They, they never felt the sting of a whip on their back. They grew up seeing the scars of the whips on their father's and mother's backs but they had carried the shame of Egypt. And so God was saying, listen, yeah, you're about to go to Jericho and you're going to see some walls fall down. You're going to go on to defeat and conquer and take land. And it's going to be great. And you're going to win. But the only way you're going to win those battles on the outside is if you'll fight the bigger battle on the inside. And so for many people, we carry pain and shame from our past. Um, you know, the Egypt was 40 years ago, but there was a piece of Egypt that remained in them. And, um, you know, the, the divorce was 20 years ago. The, the sexual molestation was 30 years ago. The, you name it, the stuff we carry, we, we carry it. 
And before we go into battle, God's like, I want to take care of that. I want to remove the shame of that from you. So the whole book of half the battle is, is a, it's a deep dive. Like it is not eight ways to a blessed life. It is a deep, dark dive into the dark recesses of your soul. Like it's probably not going to be ever a bestseller because it's like, I don't want to read that book because it gets in your business and it really challenges you to uncover those things um, that have become infected in your soul all for the purposes so we can conquer, so we can take ground for our families and from the enemy. So it's a, it really is healing the hidden hurts. It's finding those things um, so that we can begin to fight battles um, in, in, in the natural. Yeah. It's a deep dive. <laughs> One of the main ones you talked about is rejection. Yeah. Okay. And um, the seed of rejection talk about why is that so important um, for us to, to deal with and, and bring yeah. up into light. I became so obsessed with it. And I still am actually like, um, I think rejection is one of the enemy's greatest weapons because it's never preached about. It's never talked about, but the damage of it is so devastating because if you really think about pain, emotional pain, nine times out of 10, it goes back to some sort of rejection. Even with the Israelites, even the, the shame of slavery, well, think about what slavery is. It's I'm rejected. When you become adopted, it means you have now been accepted. And so as children of God, we are accepted. And that's that's exactly why God had them circumcise themselves on the banks of the Jordan River, because it was a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. You are a child of God. You are mine. And before you go to battle, I, I need you to be reminded of who you are. You are not rejected. You are accepted. And so these seeds of rejection that we get, whether it's a, a father who abused us, a father wound, a mother it can be a boss. It can be a spouse, you know, the, the spouse that's not meeting your physical needs or your emotional needs. It's rejection. You're feeling rejected. And so all of these seeds of rejection turn into uh, unforgiveness and bitterness. Um, and all of us know the impact of that on us over, over long periods of time. Um, I'm considering I'm beginning the process of kind of outlining a book. I want to, I want to write a leadership book on rejection. Now that I'm really understanding the damage of rejection, it's caused me to be a different leader because I don't, I don't want to damage somebody. I don't want to just fire somebody in a hateful way or in a mean way that's going to cause damage in that person's life, generationally, possibly, possibly, all so I can advance my cause, right? So there's, it even lets you know ways that we can lead better. Um, how am I treating my staff? Are they, are they feeling rejected by me unknowingly, right? I didn't even know I was doing it. So I just think I found all these studies. Um, I go into them in the book. One one guy did a, a study, an MRI study of the brain, and found that the same neuro pathways in our brain that that deliver pain, like physical pain when you stub your toe, the same neuro pathway that tells you that that hurts is the exact same neuro pathway that's used in rejection. And so he literally concluded his research by saying, perhaps a broken arm is not so different than a broken heart. So. Um, yeah, rejection is, I dedicate a whole chapter to it. I just became obsessed with it. And now that I know that it's a weapon of the enemy, now I'm not allowing seeds of rejection to be embedded into my heart. When somebody doesn't call me back, when I get fired from a job, when I, when my spouse does something that hurts my feelings, I'm like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to receive that seed of rejection. I'm not going to let it grow into a bitter root, as the Bible says. Yeah, one of the quotes there talks about the rejection is is a greater risk for adolescent violence than drugs, poverty, and gang membership. 
So that was the that was the uh, U.S. Surgeon General, I believe it was in 2001, said that, like the U.S. Surgeon General made that statement. Yeah, <laughs> it's damaging. It's damaging. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember a time when I had a, a significant person in my life say, "Hey, I'm gonna pick you up in the morning. We're gonna go hang out, and I'm gonna teach you how to do this." this thing. And, and I remember waking up early. I remember like sitting there in my living room, like staring outside the window for like hours waiting for this guy to come. And he never came. And like, there's that, that seat of like, it was like, man, like, you know, there's a little bit of that rejection that wants to come Absolutely. in. And, and it's just, he just forgot, well, it, like he just forgot. It was no big deal for him, but yes, for me, it was many, like huge. Yeah. Many times it's a complete accident, but what we do with rejection most of the time is we build a wall, right? So we, it, it's an offense. And so I'm going to take offense to that. And so the natural response is, I don't want to ever feel this pain again. So in order to never feel this pain again, I'm going to build a wall and no one is ever going to hurt me there again. Like it's a pain point. It's like an infected wound. And when you touch it, bad things happen. So, you know, if somebody has bitterness or anger towards a person, if you even mention their name, like it changes the atmosphere of the room because they've built a wall there. So it's, it's such a devastating um, tool that the enemy uses. I, I, he, the devil has a lot of weapons. I actually think it's one of his greatest weapons because, because it's deceptive. You don't see it coming. Um, you know, you see lust coming. You see alcoholism coming. You see addiction coming. You see all of the top 10 sins, whatever they are. But rejection is so sneaky. Like it happens so fast and you don't see it coming. But it plants this tiny little seed in your heart. Um, that grows and it changes your personality. It changes the way you're a father, changes the way you're a mother, changes the way you're a leader, changes your personality. Um, so yeah, it's a devastating tool. So John, you talk a lot about stones in the book and even in your sermons, you talk a lot about stones and the fact that Jesus was the stone that was rejected. And I know that's a, yeah. a big part of the story there. Yeah, the, that's really when it all started to click. You know, I preached this sermon called The Stench Behind the Stone uh, many years ago. And it was really that idea that Mary and Martha felt rejection, that their their brother Lazarus was sick. And they sent Jesus and said, well, Jesus is his friend. Can you come and heal Lazarus? And so what, what did Jesus do? Jesus rejected them. Jesus said, no, he delayed coming for four days. And so what happens? He ends up dying. So Jesus shows up and Mary and Martha are mad. Why? Because they got rejected. They have bitterness and anger. And Martha walks out to Jesus and said, you should have been here. And if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And there's this beautiful picture of how, of how God leads them through their pain because they did with their pain what we do with our pain. Lazarus was dead. He started to stink and we didn't know what else to do with it. So we put it in a dark place and we rolled a stone in front of it. Like the pain was too hard. This is what we do with our pain of rejection. We shove it into the dark recesses of our soul and we roll a stone in front of it and say, do not pass. We don't want to deal with this. And Jesus walks him through it. He says, take me to take me where you put him. He says, roll the stone to the side. And Martha's like, oh, Jesus, by now, their stench would be so great. And they, they knew that it stunk. Like, no, please don't roll that stone because it stinks back there. And when people try to come into our painful situations, we're like, uh-uh, don't you dare go back there. It stinks. So I preached this sermon and people flooded the altars. I couldn't believe it. Like I, I was overwhelmed. I've preached that sermon in Africa. I've preached it in Colombia. I've preached it all over the world. Every time I preach it, 
author's blood, but I was freaking out because the next week I got an email that said, well, I've, I've found my pain, John. Thanks a lot. What do I do with it? And so I, I remember, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I, I'm a stupid pastor. I've exposed all these people's pains, but I didn't tell them how to heal it. And I came across those passages. It's in the Bible a few different times, once in Psalm, and then again in the New Testament. In Ephesians, it describes Jesus as the stone that the builders rejected. And I was like, holy cow, we can learn from Jesus. What do we do with our rejection? Well, what did Jesus do with his rejection? And, you know, Jesus was rejected more than any of us. He was rejected by, he was rejected when he was in the womb because they said there's no room at the end. Rejection. I mean, he was rejected by the Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, the Greeks, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He was rejected. Think about this. He was rejected by his own father when he hung on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, but that verse goes on in Ephesians chapter two, and it says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. And so that was when the real light bulb went off for me is because then you got to begin to think about what cornerstones are. Like they didn't lay foundations and stem walls like we do today. But cornerstone was the most important stone. It determined the, the layout, the stability, the structure of the entire thing that was going to be built. And Ephesians 2, it says the foundation of the church is built on the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. But what is that cornerstone? It's rejection. So the, the Pharisees walked through the query, the query, quote unquote, and said, he's not the Messiah. We reject him as the Messiah. And that rejection is what the church is built on today. He is the Messiah. So he gives us the perfect picture of what to do with our pain. We lay it down. Like cornerstones were never meant to be carried. They're too heavy. Like if you're trying to carry a cornerstone, you're an idiot. They're meant to be laid down so something can be built on it. So what do we do with our pain? We have to lay it down at the foot of the cross. And the cool thing about a cornerstone is once you lay it down, it, it, it now isn't something heavy to carry. It's something that can bear weight. So when we lay down our pain, what we're saying is, God, I don't know what to do with this pain. So I'm going to lay it down and I'm just going to trust that you'll build something great out of it. And that's why former addicts make really good addiction counselors. And that's why people who've had marriage problems make really good counselors to help other people through marriage problems. And that's why pastors who've walked through moral failures make really good pastors who walk other pastors through moral failures because you lay your pain down and God can use it. So it just became this beautiful picture and came from the word of God, obviously. And that's what makes it so beautiful that Jesus was rejected. And he was the perfect example and the perfect picture of what we do with ours. You also talk about um, shaking it off. Um, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, um, in, in the story, we all know the story well, when, when uh, Jacob and Esau are born. And we know that Jacob, you know, steals the birthright and steals the blessing, tricks Esau, tricks the father into giving him the, the firstborn's blessing. And so what does Esau experience? Esau experiences rejection. He was rejected by his own father. And um, in the book of Genesis, he goes to his father after Jacob is gone and says, please, can't you bless me? Just one, just something. Just give me one blessing. And his father tells him, no, I'm sorry, son. The blessing's gone. You're going to live and die by the sword and all these, you know, all these sort of things. Tells him all these kind of curses him in a sense. And then 
something really powerful at the very end of that quote of what Isaac is telling his son. He says, but if you will shake this yoke from off your neck. And so he gives him this little glimmer of hope. He's like, Esau, I know you've experienced rejection. I know you're hurting. I know you're, I know that I've just burdened you with something. But then he says, but here's a little hint. If you will shake this yoke from off your neck. And so we're all, we, throughout our lifetime, we have opportunities to carry these yokes and uh, these burdens, these pains. And that's why Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You shouldn't be carrying that. And I believe the Bible doesn't go into great detail. So I'm a little bit of assuming here, a little bit of filling in the blanks, but I believe that Esau figured out how to shake that yoke off his neck because later on when Jacob is coming back after he wrestles with the angel and he wrestles with the Lord and the Bible says that he sends his gifts out in front to Jacob, I mean to Esau, and they have this, this, con this conversation later on and Jacob's like, why didn't you, why didn't you take all these gifts? Uh, I found some studies that believe that he sent out the equivalent of pr almost a million dollars what would be in today's terms with all the goats and donkeys and camels. Some, some believe that there was the equivalent of almost a million dollars in today's money. And Esau said, I don't need it. I got my own. So I just think that in some ways Esau figured out how to shake that bitterness, that bitter yoke off his neck. And so that's part of what we have to do. How do we do this? How do we, man, it's, e it's not, it's easier. It's really easy to preach a sermon on it, Ryan, about I, I've never been raped. Right. I've never been abused. I've never, my dad didn't beat me. So it's really easy for me to preach about this, but I've sat and talked to people who have, have had such pain inflicted on them. How do I do this? I, I got to find a way to shake it off. Like every single day, I got to take off that yoke. It may be something that you have to do every single day to forgive that person every single day um, and take that yoke off your neck and take Jesus's yoke, which the Bible says is easy and light. So, um, yeah, shake it off, man. Just got your Taylor Swift song. In your head <laughs> <and> I... <laughs> All right, I want to switch gears here. I'm going to give you uh, two, yeah, two uh, leadership things. Um, one, as you know, uh, you know, 2020, 2021, um, a couple big things that you've talked about that, that um, would love for you to unpack for us. One is leading through diversity. I know you're passionate about diversity. Um, and, yeah. and, and from my understanding with you is you really broaden that word diversity and it's about backgrounds and all right. kinds of things and not just the typical, very, fairly small uh, definition of that word, but you take a pretty, pretty broad version of that and say, man, it's all the diversity. So talk yeah. about leading through that. I mean, you're leading two uh, large staffs, lots, lots of team, uh, large church, a lot of involvement yeah. in terms of what that means and how to do that. Man, I think, I think 2020 was probably, um, it was, you know, rough year for everybody, but I, I think I've learned more in 2020 than I've learned in five years. Um, you know, Craig Groeschel is, is one of my pastors and he always tells me, you know, the hardest time is you'll learn the most. And he, back when I was in my fetal position of taking over a church, he said, man, the good news is you're getting 10 years of leadership experience in like one year. I'm like, shut up. I don't want that. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think the thing I learned the most in the whole diversity side, um, you talk about a hard time to pastor, right? Um, even as a white male, you know, your your words are heavy. They're, they're loud. And I, I think it was really good for the white pastor community, so to speak, is because we had to say something. And for years, we've just been able to remain silent because we don't want to say something wrong. I, I don't believe there's, I don't believe, 
I really hope I'm right, but I don't believe there is any racist white pastors. There, maybe I'm wrong, right? But so nobody has the intentionality of wanting to say something wrong. But for years, white males are just afraid to speak. Like we don't know what to say. And what 2020 did is it forced us to figure out what to say. And it forced us to stop our crazy lives and really think about it. So the thing that I learned more than anything else is to shut up. Like in order for me to speak about something, I must shut up and listen and learn. And um, all of those conversations for me were so impactful. You know, I, I sat down with, with a black friend of mine and said, man, help me learn. And one of the first things he told me was, has anybody ever, has a woman ever locked their car when you walk towards it? And I was like, nope. Uh, I was sitting um, around a table with Michael Jr. and Tim Ross and a couple of other people. So there was like two white people and three African-American people. And Michael Jr., I don't know if you've ever been around Michael Jr., but this dude is blunt as blunt gets. And he's awesome. Um, and he says, um, he said, John, let me ask you a question. And I didn't know where it was coming from. He goes, has anybody ever told you that you're articulate? And I go, no. Why would, why didn't we tell me I'm articulate? Where are you going with that? And then he looked around the room and he said, okay, show of hands. If somebody has told you in your life that you're articulate, raise your hand. All the black people raised their hand. None of the white people raised their hand. And he goes, hmm, why do you think that is? And without saying a word, he preached an entire sermon to me. And what he was saying is that people assume that white people are articulate. But if a black person is even remotely articulate, they're like, oh, wow, he's articulate. She's articulate. That's, that's the underbelly of, of the racial tension in our nation. Like without saying a word, without posting something on social media, without ranting, he gave me a a real example of, of privilege that, that I was blinded to. And so I would say that, I mean, I've had deep, deep conversations with Tim Ross and Dr. Bishop Ulmer, who pastors an amazing church in LA. I think the best thing white people can do right now is just shut up, like just shut up um, and listen and learn. And my, my perspective has changed so much uh, on this whole topic of diversity, whether it's racism, whether it's you know gender, whatever it is, um, I, even in the gender one. So at, at the university, my president's cabinet is four, okay, four people. Two of them are women. I've never led women at that level before, like it. So I did. I had to navigate that, figure that out. So I was asking, and they're sharp. These women are amazing. They're brilliant. Um, and I asked one of them one time. I said, "What's it like to be in a meeting around a table with a bunch of guys?" And she said, well, you have to be really calculated because if, you, if you're too loud or too, you know, then you're, a, you, then you're a woman power demanding your place at the table and nobody wants to be that. But at the same time, if I'm too soft, then I'm a weak woman. So every time before I speak, I have to calculate what to say and how to say it. And I'm just sitting back going, as a six, seven white male, I've never, I've never in a million years done that. So I think it's just good for us to have perspective. You know, the best way to learn is is relationally and learning from one another. So I I have not figured it out. I'm learning. I'm listening. Um, and just trying to 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 walk this out. And this is how we get better. And the church should lead the charge. Like good Lord, 
we should lead the charge in this. We can't let society uh, figure this out before we do. Um, so it, it is a passion. It's, it is a topic I'm passionate about uh, right now. So it's important. All right. So last question here, John. And I, I've been hesitant to ask you this question because I think it's going to frustrate me, the answer, because I'm pretty sure I've heard the answer to this question and it frustrates me. So, John, you've written a book. I know there's a lot of guys listening to this, this uh, podcast that, that have felt like they want to write a book. So talk to me about your book writing process. <clears throat> um, so, so God instilled something in me uh, before I knew what he was going to use it for. So going all the way back to when I started working on my dissertation, I wasn't a senior pastor yet, um, but I had a day job and I had kids. So I knew from five to bedtime, I wasn't going to rob my family. That's just, an, I'm not doing it. And I can't rob eight to five because that pays the bills. So I started the discipline of getting up at 3.30. Now that's not sustainable seven days a week. Don't do it. It'll kill you. But about three days a week, sometimes four, I'll get up at 3.30 and I'll write from 3.30 to seven. Okay. So I, that, I did that on my dissertation and that was the way I finished it. So then I became a senior pastor and I had gotten in that rhythm. So I was like, this is awesome. I'm just going to get up at 3.30. That's where I'm going to write my sermon so I can go to the office and focus on the office. I have a little bit of ADD. I'm going to get distracted at the office. I'm not going to be able to focus. So Craig Grishel talks about this a lot in his leadership podcast. Find out when you, when, when do you give your best? I give my best early in the morning. My phone's not ringing. My email's not going off. My kids don't need nothing. My wife, don't, the world is asleep. And so I, that's when I do all my writing. So when it came time to, to, to write a book, I, I had a system, I had a rhythm. And uh, I, so I wrote it over Christmas break, like in 20, what is this year? 2019. Um, my book released in 2020. So in 2019, I got up at 3.30. Um, I had eight days off. I got up at 3.30 and I wrote from 3.30 in the morning to 2 p.m., eight days in a row. And I, I finished. I wouldn't recommend that. It's not fun. But I had, and it was a baby, like I was pregnant, right? So it just came out. I was pregnant with it and I just gave birth. It was an eight-day delivery. <laughs> so that was my rhythm of writing a book. And I don't know if I'll write every book that way, but uh, it worked for that one. So I love it. So, so good. Uh, I know that 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 was lots of research, a lot of just study, um, all kinds of stuff. John, final thoughts yeah. as we, we close up here. No, I, you know, I, I have so much fallen in love with the local church. Um, and I know this is probably going out to mainly pastors. And so I just have a, I have such a heart for pastors, such a soft spot. And I'm positioned in a place where I'm, I'm getting to train pastors in, in higher education, which is just a massive passion of mine. But I, you know, I would just encourage pastors, you know, pastor, pastoring is one of the loneliest things that can be, shouldn't be, can be one of the most lonely places to be. Um, so I just, I just want to encourage pastors out there, you, you know, whether you pastor a large church or, or a small church, it really doesn't matter. I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think God is worried about the breadth of our church as much as he's worried about the depth of our church. And so, so much of pastoring, this is one of my major pet peeves and major passions. So much of pastoring has become about breadth. And if you don't have a church a certain size, if you don't have a certain number of Instagram followers, if you're not on the conference speaking circuit, then you must not be pastoring. I think one of the greatest pastors to ever live was Eugene Peterson. The guy pastored a small church of two or 300 his whole life. Um, so I always like to tell pastors, you're never being more of a pastor 
than when you're sitting on the side of a hospital bed while someone dies with the, and you're with the family. That's a pastor. Like if you want a big church and a big stage and a preaching circuit, then you shouldn't be a pastor. Like that's not a, in fact, that's not a pastor. That's a preacher. If you want to be a teaching pastor, be a teaching pastor, but be a pastor. Like there's no greater honor when we get to heaven and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't say well done, good and faithful mega church pastor. It's just well done, good and faithful servant. Like just serve, just love God's people. Just be a pastor, just be a shepherd to that flock. And there's, there's really no greater honor on the planet. There's no better job. There's no, no greater honor than to pastor the local church. So to your listeners, your viewers, you are doing exactly what God is calling you to do, um, even if nobody notices. And maybe more so if nobody notices. So I just encourage, encourage your listeners that way. Great word, John. Thank you so much for sharing. You guys, get the book. Um such a powerful book, uh, Half the Battle, Healing the Hidden Hurts. Uh, such a great book. So, John, thanks for being with us today. Hey, bless you, man. Love you. Love your family, your ministry, your podcast. You, you're an amazing man. I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be your friend, brother. Thanks for having me on. Thanks.